Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan or occasional observer we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury on this episode of the victory over injury podcast we have an exceptional and uniquely talented individual one who possesses perhaps the greatest tools needed to overcome adversity injury self-doubt and insecurity and his passion is facilitating the optimal mindset to win to win the day the game the recovery and this game we call life Dr. Brett McCabe is a licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology from Louisiana State University with an emphasis in behavioral medicine with additional training in clinical psychology from Brown University Medical School. As a former Division I four-year letterman and two-time national champion baseball player at LSU, Dr. McCabe has combined his championship athletic background with his education in behavioral medicine to create the MindSide, a sports and performance consulting practice for athletes, coaches, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and high-performing individuals based out of Birmingham, Alabama. Through his practice, Dr. McCabe works with numerous professional and collegiate athletes in the NFL, NBA, MMA, PGA, and LPGA, and he serves as a sports and performance psychologist for the University of Alabama Athletic Department, including the 2016, 2018, and 2020 National Championship Alabama football teams. In addition, his advice and experience is sought by numerous national companies, including State Farm, Bristol-Myers Squibb, New York Life, and Kate's Bank, among others, as a means of optimizing performance of its employees. I know Dr. McCabe to be an exceptional speaker, pragmatic performance guide, and an outstanding motivator. Without further ado and pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Brett McCabe. Cool. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. Growing up, you obviously moved around a lot. And you were a little bit shy and read somewhere else that there was some of that that caused maybe a little anxiety for mm-hmm. you. What do you think was the cause of that? Was it just the moving? Growing up, we moved so much, and every three years we would move. I was in sixth grade and we moved to Dallas, which was a non-military town in the mid eighties. And we moved to Plano, Texas, which at the time Plano, Texas was going through this massive boom and it was the teenage suicide capital of the world. Really? And they had more suicides there per capita than any other city in the country. The graduating high school class, I think at Plano high school that year was 2,500. So it was very large, very overwhelming. We spent two years in Dallas and then 
we moved to Baton Rouge, which is a little bit better than Dallas. I think we all struggled in Dallas and moved to Baton Rouge. I go to a all boys Catholic school, established school. And I was a very late bloomer. Mm-hmm. I was the youngest kid in my class or one of the one or two. And then I didn't grow into my senior year. So I only played one year of varsity baseball, probably from the time I was uh, 13 to 16. It was really tough because I was always behind. I was always sure. not in the group. You did start to see someone for some of that stuff yeah. growing up. And that was kind of more encouraged and you felt that that was a, an additive thing in your life. And where do you think that came from and how helpful was it was seeing somebody about that? You know, looking at it now as a psychologist, I tend to think people are either run hot or run cold. And so the people who run hot tend to be like me who tend to be more anxious. People who run cold tend to be more put in the box, put it away. I'm okay. You know, the wind can blow and I'm okay. They're going to worry or, or obsess about other things. My mom's family was very anxious. Uh, if I look back at my grandfather, my mom didn't have a good relationship with her family. They were around us, but they had a lot of challenges. And if I look back, my grandfather probably either had very bad anxiety or had elements of what we probably consider bipolar disorder today. Mm-hmm. And I was in eighth grade and Baton Rouge school system is a parochial system. You really don't go to the public school system. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get into the one in my neighborhood, the Catholic school. So I had to go to a, like a smaller, more fringe. It wasn't like the cool one to go to. Yeah. And I went there for my eighth grade year and then got into the all boys Catholic school, which was very prestigious, but I didn't come in with 30 friends from my middle school. I came in with four that really weren't my friends. And I started that again. And then I was an outsider for a year. And I remember it just dealing with the, not knowing who I was, not knowing kind of where my comfort was. I wasn't on the premium travel team, baseball teams. So there was a bunch of that kind of absence there. And I remember we had a speaker who came to speak to us one day and and it's just speaking to the anxiety a little bit. And it was about teenage suicide. And I can remember it was the first talk in the morning and I couldn't get it out of my head the rest of the day. And it was really the thought of, would you ever, could you ever? And I couldn't get that thought out of my head. And I remember I went home, this was before cell phones. And so I go home and I call my parents. My mom was at work, my dad was at work. And I said, I can't get this thought in my head. Well, of course, you know what they did. They came home immediately. The next day I wasn't seeing a psychologist and I had no intention. I was, it wasn't that it was the fact of how could somebody get to that point? I couldn't get over that. And so I went and saw somebody and they, you know, it was comforting. And then when I was probably in high school or college, I'd go see the psychologist friend of ours, just checking in more like mental health checks. Hey, is everything good? Went through a bad breakup. You know, it was more like, hey, I'm going to go see Laura this week. So it was never a stigma for us. It was always like, there's your source. There's where you go. To me, mental health was just the way it was. And you had to do the things to take care of yourself. And that came from my mom. My dad was stoic. My mom was very engaged in human development and human experience stuff. And so I'd say that I've always struggled with anxiety, probably subclinical, but it helps me to do what I do. But at the same time, I have to learn ways to decompress. I have to learn ways to turn it off. Sure. It's why I don't do clinical work anymore because I can't yeah. turn off on a Friday night. Yeah. And performance work is easier. I can deal with that. I don't have to worry about if somebody's okay or safe. So anxiety has always been an essence of who I am. And I think it helps me when I work with clients. I mean, the number of patients that I see today or clients that I see today, it's 50 to 60% of them have anxiety in yeah. the performance realm. So helping them understand like, this is what I feel. And it's how have I learned to manage it through mindfulness or reading or stuff like that is, is probably been the help. So what are the top three things that you do use to manage that, especially with people operating at a very high level, whether it's sports or any other profession, 
obviously it's going to be very individual, but for you, what do you feel like is very reliable for you to help manage that? There's no doubt exercise works for some people. You can look at me and realize I don't exercise. However, I would like to, I enjoy it sometimes, but I think the number one thing that anyone needs to do in a high performance world is you've got to have 20 to 30 minutes a day that's devoted to you. So for instance, like this morning I got up, I went to breakfast and I just sit and read and it's usually my phone. It's Twitter now because we don't have newspapers, but I love that time where I can redevote to myself. I love to drive in the car without the music on. And it's just sometimes that peace of mind time. As an only child, I tend to be a little control freak. So I like to control my environment. And so if I can control my time, I don't have any control of my schedule. It's like you. I mean, you look at your schedule. It's where am I working today? Okay, I'm there. But having that time to be able to say, you know what? I'm going to eat at my desk today because I want to. So whatever we need to do to understand that struggle is the norm, it's not the abnormal. And then how do we manage the struggle to take it down a notch or two helps. The drama that we bring to circumstances is usually the problem, not the problem. Yeah. Not the circumstance. It's the drama. So I think if anybody that can do, I mean, exercises, you know, one girl in my office, Emma, she is a runner. When she has a tough day, she goes home. She's a former soccer player. Um, She'll go and say, I ran five miles today just to burn stress. You know, my wife likes to exercise. So whatever it is, I like to cook. I mean, I love to grill, but I'm not going to do it at eight o'clock at night when I've had a long day. Yeah. So those types of things. Yeah. When I look at a player who comes to see me, nobody comes to me because they're playing well. I've yet to have that guy or girl. Everybody comes to me when they're, I call it Suckville, yeah. when they're stuck in Suckville, that they suck. Okay. And so the self-judgment is extremely high. They feel like, why should I be here? I'm, I've done everything right. Or, you know, maybe they haven't done the right things because they've cut up practice and now they're paying for it. The hard thing is as a player is that you have to get back to the core essence and then you have to be patient. Because there are also times that when we're very confident, luck happens and we take it as a personal that we did it. And when we're unlucky, we feel like the world's against us. So you have to get them to be patient and look at the long term and say, we're going to start building momentum in the little ways that we do things. We're not going to look for all or nothing outcomes. We're not going to look for great days or bad days. We're going to look for levels of improvement. We're going to look for the things that we do every day that we can improve on. And I want to get them off of the outcome. Now, outcomes matter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all about winning. But I want them to understand that they can't really control it. They got to build mastery. They got to build confidence over time. Number one, the mind doesn't like uncertainty. And yet we live in it every day. But in in uncertainty, the first thing it has to do is protect you. And so it misinterprets everything as a threat. And then what it does is it starts looking for patterns of the past where you met those same challenges. Well, what happens if I've lacked confidence? Now I see more threat. So what happens is you got to get them believing in like, these are the one or two things I can do well. And we're going to start with one. If they're really down, we're going to start with, so like a Jordan speed, I don't work with Jordan, but you know, for someone like a Jordan right now, who's, who's ball striking is, is Achilles heel is we're going to accept ball striking is going to be an Achilles heel. And we're just going to accept the fact that he's going to get himself in some trouble, but we're going to slowly start changing. And what I've seen with players is when you get them to accept that where they are is where they are. Then all of a sudden the judgment's gone. And when the judgment's gone, the kind of self-hatred that they put back on themselves removes a layer that allows them to be successful. That's really interesting. Expectations are the killer for performance every single time. And people will say, well, I mean, don't you you expect to play well? I'm like, no, can't expect anything. I can believe I will. I can demand I'll do the things that will help me be successful. I can't expect anything. Try to expect your pizza delivery person to show up on time. They're going to come within a range. Yeah. Okay. You can't expect anything. 
You have to learn to trust it. You have to learn to build belief in it. But expecting it is going to kill you every time because it's going to create tension the first sign it's off. Do you see that mental health issues in collegiate professional sports are becoming much more of a prevalent thing, especially with things just being in general much more in the public's eye with social media and everything like that? And if it is, as far as mental health issues go, what is it about athletes that we should be focusing on to address that and make that, like you said at the very beginning of this, less of a stigma around that? I think if we look back 20 years ago, we probably thought that mental health issues were probably somewhat buffered the athlete population because exercise can be an antidepressant effect. These are goal-directed individuals who are high-functioning, so why would they be depressed, right? That's bogus, okay? There was an NCAA study, which I think is underreported, but it was showed a differential between student-athletes and non-athletes. You know, we're seeing a lot of anxiety. We're seeing a lot of depression among the student population. We're also seeing it among the student-athlete. Student-athlete tends to be a little less. I think it's a reporting bias. I don't think student-athletes historically are, are self-reporters. I don't think they're willing to ask for help. That has changed in the last five years, though, and I give a lot of credit to the Players' Tribune, uh, the website that does exposés and stuff. Mm. You've seen a shift that happened there when people started coming out like Kevin Love or uh, DeMar DeRozan or Theo Fleury from the hockey world and different people who started coming out saying, you know what, I am really struggling mental health-wise. I'm having panic attacks. For years in Major League Baseball, I don't think there was ever a player that went on the disabled list for a psychiatric-related issue. Then all of a sudden, Dontrell Willis went on for anxiety, and then – it started happening. And I give Dontrell Willis a hell of a lot of credit for saying, don't make it a back strain, make it anxiety. Yeah. Okay. We've suffered it for years. Okay. People have suffered it. Statistically, you have to, but it's, it's one of those things where in the college ranks, it was a very strong pet peeve of mine. in the fact of when I was on internship at Brown, I remember calling coach Burtman, who was the AD at the time. And I said, coach, look, you, you really need to put a psychologist on staff. And he said, Oh God, I mean, I just can't afford a $60,000 a year salary. First of all, I wouldn't do that job for that. But, um, <laughs> you know, God bless the people who do, yeah. but no. Yeah. But what he was saying was, eh, I don't know. Not, remember, he has a daughter who's a psychologist and sure. his, another daughter is a social worker. So, yeah. I mean, it's not that he's anti-psychology. You just couldn't see the value of it. We, you know, we're going to spend money in nutrition because I can see the body fat changes. I can see that. Especially when you have somebody the quality of Amy Bragg at Alabama. Right. I can see an impact. Yeah. How can I see that in psychology? See, it used to be, if you had an issue, you have to go find somebody on campus. And my fight for that all along was don't make a, an athlete go sit in the student mental health center because of today's social media. And we also have to normalize it. We have to make it so that if I'm walking through the athletic department, people aren't like, oh God, that's Brett. Don't talk. You know, I go by Brett when I'm around those guys and girls because I want them to feel comfortable with me. You know, I don't dress up when I go over there. I, I wear coaching pants and tennis shoes. Yeah. And a polo shirt. I want them to feel comfortable that they can come and relate to me. But I think what we've found over the last five or 10 years is you've seen an explosion in the athletic departments because more players are seeking treatment. There's more uncovering. And I think what happened is we see players who probably throughout their amateur or high school careers who never sought treatment because they could overcome whatever their pain was by their play. And they're always searching for some nirvana with going to college. So a kid who had anger issues in a high school got bypassed because, well, I mean, he or she can shoot the basketball. Or a baseball kid who had social anxiety disorder was fine because we didn't have a lot of media. Now you put them in a big campus where they're having to deal with big classes, moving away from home, and the like. It's an adjustment. 
And we also have to remember that the psychological blossoming age is 18 to 22. So that's the first sign that we see psychic. Now it's moving a little younger, I would say, for our demands, but we have more stresses. Now we take a college kid who's been able to come and go as they want, and now we're putting them into a tremendous psychological pressure with the time constraints, academics, being away from home for the first time. Yeah. Now they're 18 playing with 22-year-olds who are in different stages of life. Yeah. They're seeing that they're not the big male or female on campus anymore, and they need support. I would give Jeff Allen and Ginger Gilmore Childers, they're the gold standard in NCAA because of how they take it. I give Coach Saban a, a zillion amount of credit for this. He's never villainized mental health. In fact, he does the opposite. We had a very high profile player, or could have been, who was going through a pretty strong psychiatric issue. And that's how I got involved with the football team. I wasn't there to work for football for the first couple of years. I was there to work in every other sport. And they asked me to help this kid because they needed something in the moment. We, we got, and this kid had, this kid was sick. And I remember working with him for a little while, and then it, it got really bad. And this kid was a trusted player. I mean, we're not talking like, yeah. you know, yeah, don't dress him. We're not going to miss it. I sent a message to Ginger, and I said, he can't play this weekend. We need to put him in the hospital. And she was like, okay, hang on. She calls back and says, okay, coach says, get him wherever he needs to go. Let him know that when he comes back and he's well, there's no impact on his player chart. Wow. And I thought, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Okay, first of all, you have to deal with the embarrassment of a kid who's asking for help and needs to go inpatient for a couple of days. So it wasn't like we were involuntary committing him. This kid just needed, he just needed a break. Yeah. And he's not going to have any retribution from his coach going into a big rivalry game. Wow. That's incredible. And yes, when he came back, he moved right back into his position. Team opened him up. He ended up retiring from the sport. It was better for him in the yeah. long run. But that was unbelievable. Everybody wants to make their, their mind up with Coach Saban of how he is. I don't know many coaches that would do that. I don't either. It, it would have been very easy to say, you're quitting on us. He didn't do that. He said, you get the kid the help he needs. We're here for him first. Yeah. Shocking. That's incredible. It's incredible. It's an immense amount of care showing, showing Unbelievable. players. Yeah. And so I think what you're seeing now is instead of having, I think four or five years ago, a psychologist from 12 of the 14 SEC schools got together and we all had a conversation and I'm one of three that's not a full-time employee. And we actually kind of like it that way at Alabama. We have, like you got, we like having experts come in from, and we can piecemeal. And now those meetings have 40 people. Wow. And it's this thing of, are we dealing with mental health? We're we dealing with performance. What are we dealing with? And I focus mostly on performance and struggling or injury and a little bit of clinical, but we do a lot of work on educating our coaches and our strength coaches. And a lot of times a player will go to a strength coach before they ever go to anybody else and say, mm -hmm. look, man, can I talk to you? I'm really struggling. Strength coach has got to have the psychological empathy to sit there and say, you know, here we are. Coach Cochran at Alabama, Evan, I'll butcher his last name, but is a vet and he's gone through PTSD and he's been on the brink of very deep depression. He's director of player development there. And he can pull a kid in and say, look, dude, I've been where you are. Yeah. I've seen stuff that you've never seen. Yeah. And I've been there where I didn't know if I could live tomorrow. And so let me help you. So there's no judgment. And what happens is the kids start, they realize that and they start asking for help. And we catch them so much earlier in the cycle. That's great. And it helps. And that's why I always say I'm proud to work there. People give me hell from playing at LSU and working at Bama. <laughs> but I was going to bring that up. I'm yeah. sure there, there was a little bit but of that's why. conflict there. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Because I know the commitment they have to their players. And I know that and they're building on and they're adding on. And I've said, Ginger, in five years, you're going to see a wing that is going to be the mental health wing. We'll call it performance optimization or whatever we'll call it. Yeah. But you're going to see counselors in here daily. And we're as integrated with the team as anybody else. 
I think the NCAA has done, Stephen Hainline, who's the medical director, has done a brilliant job of normalizing mental health. And there's a report among mental health on the NCAA website. I think they have to look at the role of licensed providers as not being seen as an extra coach because it's so prevalent now. They see us as an extra coach. But if I bring in a book author, they don't see him as an extra coach. So he can stand on the sidelines. I can't. Sure. That's wrong. You know, that book author has no boundaries, no understanding of what they're talking about. Yeah. But I think the next five or 10 years are going to see a massive increase there. Working with the Alabama football team, mentioned some of the experiences you've seen. Do you think there's more of a prevalence in contact sports like football with mental health issues? I think at this age, from or? a concussion standpoint. Yeah. But I'm not a concussion guy. Yeah. I know my boundaries, and that's one that I can't keep up with the literature fast enough and the relevance of it. I think what it is is that we have to get better into the communities to help them understand that mental health issues are normal. Mental wellness is something that we should all do every day to protect ourselves as much as we do to watch temperature. You know, what are the things that we do from a sleep standpoint? What are the things that we do about a self-care standpoint? You know, is your mom or dad working two or three jobs to help pay the bills? What can you do to help them? Mm -hmm. How do you form relationships and maintain relationships? The little things, you know, how do you treat a boyfriend or a girlfriend? A lot of these kids don't know. I mean, one of the things I tell coaches is take them and teach them table manners. For many of these athletes, none of them ever had table manners. They get down, they put their head on the table and they shovel. Okay. You take a job in a corporate environment and they do that. It's no good. So they're going to be embarrassed. Teach them why it's important. Don't chastise them. Show them. Teach them how to write handwritten thank you notes. Teach them how to make a phone call and request help from Amazon. They don't know how to do that kind of stuff because... As one of my friends and former teammates retired from Major League Baseball, he called me one day and goes, hey, how do you book an airline flight? Because the travel secretary for the Major League team did all their travel. Yeah. So he would call for his wife and they would say, oh, yeah, we got you a flight leaving on this day. And this. Oh, okay, cool. What hotel are we staying at? He had no idea how to balance his checkbook. And that was a Major League player who's worth, I don't know, probably $50 million. Yeah. So you have to teach them. And if, if you shame them or they feel shame, that psychological angst is going to build. Yeah. And so you have to teach them and help them that way. They don't know. I mean, they literally don't know to tell thank you when they're walking out of the door of a doctor's office. Cause nobody's, I mean, was that just, I mean, that's just some basic human need. No, they don't know. Yeah. So do you think there's a component of this that is socioeconomically related as well in terms of mental health issues, especially in athletes? Longstanding in the psychiatric literature is the slippery slope effect, which you see the impact over generations of mental health issues that are go untreated. I think we're doing a better job of helping at a much earlier age in schools. You've got a couple of issues. If you have higher SES, a lot of times you have two parents working in the home, which creates an absence and a stress. And in the lower SES, you have only one parent or one caregiver in the home, mm-hmm. which also creates another stress. So it's stress is stress. I learned a long time ago to never assume higher SES meant healthier. Okay. Because... Many times, if you have two parents who are high performers, they may not know how to communicate to their kids. You assume, oh, here's a dad who looks like he's involved because he came to the doctor's appointment. But you ask the kid, when's the last time the dad came to a game? He can't remember. Yeah. Or that dad, because I'm going to use this as a dad because usually it's a dad. I've seen this with very affluent schools where the coaches struggle with coaching the parents. And I try to tell the coaches, you've got to understand you're dealing with their most valuable asset, their kid. But their ability to perform in their corporate world has been able to overcome barriers like you. Yeah. They are good at it. You're not. They are going to overcome you. You're just one more step in the way. It's nothing personal. They became CEO because they moved up 
you are one more block in the way, but you don't have that skill. Okay. So how can we help them? So it's always something different. So stress is stress. Sure. Okay. Stress is very relative. You take a kid who has a safe environment, but in a chaotic uh, neighborhood, but they're safe. They're fine. You take that same kid out, you put them into a very safe neighborhood in a chaotic home. They're not fine. Gotcha. So we have to look at where do they get their support? Where do they get their strength? And who do they go to? People talk about the kids today are different. The kids aren't different if you text them. They're the same as we were 18 years ago. All you got to do is text them. They have more resources and ability than ever before. So we just got to, you know, see it in a different way. Yeah. You'd mentioned before that you always enjoyed the positions where you had a little more pressure. The pitchers, the goalies, the kickers. Do you think those are the hardest positions in sports from a psychological standpoint? And of those, what would you think would be the number one most difficult position? Well, I mean, I think it's clear that the pitchers are the best athletes on a baseball team, right? Much better than the guy who stands out in right field. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I think every position has its own demands. I think what you see is naturally people gravitate towards positions that psychologically fit them. So a kid who doesn't want to be under pressure is not going to try out for kicker, okay? But an offensive lineman or a center, particularly in the development that we have today, they have tremendous pressures too. Even much more, if you look at an offensive lineman, they're going to play the whole game. So either you're good and you're in or you're out and you're not playing. Yeah. So every player has their different positions. I think the the hard challenge is helping kids realize and athletes realize how they can find, I don't say peace, but how they can find their process through their clutter and they can succeed that way. There's a reason why dental offices have, for the most part, soft music playing or they have fish tanks. Yeah. It's the bubbling sound that calms people down. They're already anxious. But the bedside manner of there's a story that we learned in grad school and I'm sure it's true, but it may seem true to us as one of my professors used to train the med students at Virginia, um, college medical school, college, Virginia college of medicine, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And she would get first or second year, I guess first year residents and they'd go through their clinical assessments and she would go through and they would come in and they would do the assessment. They'd watch through a window and then they'd come in and, and the, the doctor would give this full assessment. And she said, I asked one of them one day, I said, can you tell me the patient's name? And didn't know the name and flunked him. It's like, you've got somebody who's trusting you and you don't even know their name. That's horrendous. Because she said, what you have to understand is as a physician or a psychologist, you're trying to solve the puzzle in your head immediately. You're trying to see and predict, but you're forgetting that the person sitting there doesn't need it on a time stamp. They need the relationship. And one of the things that I learned very early on from a bedside manner is I remember I had a patient who had classic PTSD following being shot at work. And she came in, she had this clear, usually you don't see clear PTSD. It's usually pretty, it's got layers to it. This one was clear and she was a fast food manager and where the hospital was, I was in Baton Rouge, it was a tough area. And she got shot in a drop. And what happened was the PTSD was due to when she got shot, she hit the accelerator and she couldn't stop the car from hitting the the pole in front of her. So she not only saw the pole in slow motion, she thought the guy who shot her was going to come and kill her. She walked a mile and a half to get to the hospital and, and everything. And I remember I kept getting her closer and closer. And what you do is exposure therapy is you take them out in the public and you get them closer and closer to the scenario. And I got her across the street and we worked through it and she never came back. She didn't come back for about six months. And I come in and I was so excited. And I remember talking to my professor and he was like, well, first of all, I've never had that opportunity to do that. What a brilliant opportunity. And I was like, what do you mean? You're the professor. You should have done this multiple times. And he's like, well, you don't get them like that. And he goes, but you exposed her too fast. You overwhelmed her. And I thought, all right. So she came back and I slowed it back down and we, 
and she ended up returning to work, but just not in fast food, whatever. And so then I had another patient who came in and is the same way of not listening from bedside manner. She came in and she was depressed and I did the assessment and realized she has obsessive compulsive disorder. Very rare. You don't see it in pure OCD. And I was like, okay, let me tell you why you're depressed. You're this. And I said, I'm going to start exposing you to these things. And she never came back. And my professor, my mentor was like, you screwed that up. She didn't come in because she had OCD. She came in because she was depressed. She wasn't sleeping. You got to listen to what they're telling you. Yeah. Learn to establish the rapport with people. They'll tell you a lot more. They're only going to tell you what they need you to know right now. Right now. Because that's where their most stress is. I'm on 24 hours a day. My players can call me. I've, I look at my phone as we're talking. I've got four messages from players. It's challenge. It's what we do. But when your kids are with you, the struggle is normal. But how you present to people, how you're working through the struggle is going to give more peace of mind to your kids than anything else. And I think the way we find that peace in our life helps. So that's amazing. I can't thank you enough for giving us the time. Obviously, we've been here for almost three hours now, and this was phenomenal. I, I learned a lot. And again, like I said, from the from the time I first met you over at Andrew Sports Medicine during your talk, I, I knew that uh, you were a special personality. And so I'm glad we got the chance to talk again. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun. Absolutely. Thank you. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.